what I really live for and the basis of everybody that I train is built on botany. And so that's where my passion lies, and specifically salt marsh botany. And so, again, using uh, the home base as training grounds to learn about the species and then going out to really cool places to take those lessons and, and, and spread them. And somehow, some way, myself and my firm and some of my staff have now become leading experts in the conservation of uh, salt marsh birds bee. Welcome to Pelicanus. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Pelicanus highlights the people and organizations that are making it their purpose to grow the conservation field, to make right the wrongs of our past, and to show how people have and still are making a monumental difference in our world. And we want to tell their stories. So we're here to show that not only is there something that can be done, it is being done by dedicated scientists who have made conservation their life, and that we can find optimism through science. In this episode, we talk to Eric Zahn, a coastal wetland restoration ecologist based out of Long Beach, California. Eric has had an incredible influence on the many different programs and dozens of coastal salt marshes throughout Central and Southern California. Let's let him talk about his role in Southern California salt marshes. Yeah, my name is Eric Zahn, middle name Forrest. My, my parents decided that from an early age, I would get into conservation, and I am the principal restoration ecologist for Tidal Influence at a small ecological consulting firm based out of Long Beach, California. Started in 2009 uh, with uh, myself and uh, Taylor Parker, and at the time, we were just enthusiasts looking to conserve local urban wetland habitats. And that has since perpetuated itself into me actually becoming somewhat of a decent business person and, and running what now I would put, quote unquote, uh, a firm that does ecological consulting. So uh, I love the times I get out in the field still, but a lot of what I do now is trying to make partnerships and move projects along so that we can continue to have wonderful people out there doing great work towards conservation. While Tidal Influence is technically an ecological consulting company, they've figured out how to do things just a little bit differently. They're conservation-based first, so much so that people often confuse them with a nonprofit organization. Yeah, so we started really focused on two main conservation efforts, and they just happened to both be based on coastal salt marshes. And, and so we kind of knew what we wanted to get into and focus on, and we were trying to come up with names, and it was pretty silly. You know, we were all over the map trying to think of uh, names that represented what we wanted to do, and we were reading books by Joy Zedler. And she kept on saying that tidal influence was the most critical aspect for a healthy coastal salt marsh. And one day we were like, there it is, tidal influence. And, and so, you know, early on, yeah, we were focused on coastal urban wetlands, you know, specifically doing a lot of interaction with the public. And we kind of became known as, as, as the guys that were, you know, 
at the lagoon or the guys out at Los Rios Wetlands that would give tours and and do naturalist uh, programs and, and things like that. And, and that that was really inspiring to kind of understand the cultural culture of conservation surrounding those areas. And uh, we were quite content with that. Um, that's why I love uh, the company that Taylor and I developed is we were always looking at our mission as altruistic. And, you know, we never fancied that we'd be able to be as altruistic as, as the company can be now with the resource that has gained. But putting people in, in position to make a difference and not always just be fo- focused on making a profit is, is really a mantra that I love to perpetuate. Tidal influence in Ericsson have had a profound impact on coastal salt marsh conservation in Southern California. But over the last few years, they've taken on a pretty hefty project trying to save and bring back a federally endangered species called salt marsh bird's beak. And this story is as convoluted as much of a roller coaster ride as you can imagine. Salt marsh bird's beak, otherwise known as Chloropyron maritimum maritimum, is a dicot, an annual herb that is native to California and Baja California. To describe the plant a little bit more, it's a little tiny plant that you find mostly in salt marshes. It's a little white flower. It's very small, but they kind of grow in clumps and very low. They are pollinated by various species of bees. In the California Native Plant Society's rare plant rank, it is listed as a 1B2, which means it is rare, threatened, or endangered in California and elsewhere but it is also listed by the state of California and the federal government as endangered. But we'll post photos of this plant on our social media accounts and our website and direct you to the title influences social media as well. We're we're approaching the conservation of salt marsh bird's beak or chloropyron maritimum maritimum from, you know, a few different perspectives. Uh, we are looking at it range-wide and trying to understand its distribution. Um, we're trying to analyze its threats and help managers understand how to deal with those threats. But most importantly, from my perspective, and also the coolest thing that we're doing is we are trying to see if we can establish new populations of this plant in places that it's currently doesn't exist or it's extant and that requires really honing in i guess on places where the plant exists to understand like well, how does it fit into this kind of sub community of the salt marsh plant community it's in the upper marsh uh, so it's usually above six feet in elevation above sea level um, but then it can't go up very much higher because it hits the upland. So it's usually between about six and nine feet in elevation, very narrow band, right? You know, what is it about the places where it exists that it, it seems to, what kind of patterns do we see? And one of them is the host species. And there is already existing research on certain host species making individual plants more robust, either in their size or their flowering, or their fruits and seed sets, Um, and we, you know, having that in mind, going around looking at all these places, like, oh wow, where we often see this plant, it's usually with 
one of the two Disticlus species, or sometimes both, Disticlus spicata and Disticlus littoralis. And then we also saw a lot of trends where often, you know, where we saw really wonderful occurrences, there, there's uh, aerograss or triglochin concina involved, um, which helped to open up the gaps in the canopy and, and bring down the more dominant plants. You know, we also were, were seeing some relationship with the backside of dunes and probably some of the fresh water that can come out of the backside of dunes. You know, trying to understand those nuances to where Birdsbeak does exist so that we can then walk around other marshes and go, that looks like a place where that plant would grow. We've seen it grow, you know, in your mind's eye, you go like, there it is. You got the right elevations, you got, you know, the the right mixture of the plant community and, you know, maybe the right mixture of the freshwater sources. And so what we developed, you know, essentially is this checklist or a matrix for these needs of these plants. And we started off at Huntington Beach Wetlands um, with seeds that were collected by the Rancho Santa Ana Botanic Garden. They collected 2,400 seeds. Well, actually, they, they collected 4,800 seeds. They seed banked 2,400 of them, sent them off to Colorado. You know, it's important conservation as well. Um, and then they gave us 2,400 to do an outplanting with. And with that outplanting, our, our client, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, wanted actually to do an experimental planting, which I wasn't super in favor of because I don't want to experimentally throw away endangered species seeds and not knowing. I didn't have permits at that time to collect the seeds, not knowing I could get more. You know, I was like, damn. But we set up um, a, an experimental planting uh, with a variety of different um, patches, and, and the patches turned into clusters, and they were at different elevations and had, and the patches had different treatments. And, uh, we, we threw these seeds out there in, a, in an experimental pattern and we did that in November and in March of 2015, 2016 and eagerly awaited bird's beak to germinate and nothing happened at all. And we went through all these trials and tribulations of trying to find a place that would accept the seeds and finally getting a partner in Huntington Beach Wetlands and Conservancy who were the private landowners and they were super excited. And we, you know, went through all of this development of a, um, an outplanting plan and a monitoring plan, did it all, collected all this data, and we threw the seeds out and nothing happened. And we were even watering them. Like, oh, my goodness. Complete failure. I will not be the leading expert in birds big after this. And we just kind of kept on monitoring, you know, okay. And we, we came back the following February of 2017, and we saw germination. And so we collected all the data on that, but all the treatments we really done, the plots were kind of null and void at that time. It was just like they said, the seeds just sat there and rumbled around and f- found their little spots and, and then, you know, popped out, you know, but it was a rainier year that winter. And I think that really had a big role in it. And, and if you're an annual plant trying to germinate in a salt marsh, sometimes you're dealing with salinities that are 100 to 200 parts per thousand so you need what these things are called germination windows i don't think we got the natural rainfall you can irrigate as much as you want but there's nothing that can replace a multi-day rainstorm when it comes to saturation of salty silty soils that also have been compacted likely because they've been moved around and this particular location is a, a, a former staging area for a construction effort which gave us the patchiness that we were looking for but maybe not the soil quality um, and so it just took a year and they popped up and we we're like, oh yes, 
<laughs> these seeds do work, you know, the magic beans will grow the beans. Fuck, there we go. All right. So we were back at it and we we're taking pictures of it and, and, you know, then using social media to get people excited about it and, you know, learned a bunch. And the, actually the most interesting thing that we learned from the experiment, even though a lot of our treatments don't work, was that don't throw your seeds too low. We had some that were below the 6.5 foot mark. We had clusters and patches down there and none of them grew. Um, we had some right along that line at 6.5 feet, um, which is almost like the highest high tide line. It obviously gets higher. And, and those did all right, but it was the ones that were up above that actually did darn well. And so that was the most important thing is we learned that elevation. If you're going to get these rare seeds, <laughs> don't throw them too low. You can throw them up high and maybe they'll find their way down the slope, but don't waste them and throw them low. And that's when I was like, okay, we're done with experiments. I think we know that, first of all, we can grow bird's beak at the Huntington Beach Wildlands Great, and we don't need to put them too low. Now let's go out and find some other spots where we could put a bunch of seeds. Uh, so, so yeah, we we then started hiking around uh, the Huntington Beach Wetlands and going through with our checklist of, hey, do we see the the right topography? Do we see the right host plants? Is there a chance that there might be the right pollinators? And we, we were actually using a GPS unit to collect those data and analyzing them and, and ranking the outplanting sites and uh, in hopes that we get a bunch of seed that we could spread. And uh, we actually ended up getting permits to collect seed from up Newport Bay. And we were nervous about that because, you know, not many people have got to, you know, pinch a fruit off of this plant and, and see what it's like to collect the seeds and how long it takes to collect seeds and how fruitful it can, you can be <clears throat> doing those collections and how much time it takes. And we actually found out, hey, if you find the right patch at the right time, you collect a lot of seeds quickly. But it's the sorting of the seeds that takes days and, you know you put them in an envelope that's great but then you have to break them all down get all the duff and everything out of it just get down to the pure live seed and count all the seeds because especially if you have a permit for you know in, in handling an endangered plant and its seeds the agencies want you to report how many seeds you collected and then how many seeds did you put in certain spots so we were making packets of 200 seeds in certain years dealing with as many as 40,000 seeds. So we're just like people coming in. What can I do? Sort seeds, sort seeds, sort seeds. You know, I got all my other work done. Let's sort seeds. And, and, and that takes a lot of funding. We didn't realize when we were writing some of our early funding proposals that sorts, sorting seeds was where we needed to put all our time and effort. Um, but yeah, we got, we got really good at that. And actually putting them into packets of 200 is important because when you go out to outplant them, as as long as it takes to sort them, it's the opposite with spreading them. They spread like ridiculously fast. Like you can drop two hundred seeds and go, oops, <laughs> there goes two hundred seeds. And so you don't want to put packets of five hundred to a thousand seeds, you know, where you can open up the envelope and spill a thousand seeds. Uh, we put them into smaller increments and you know pinch them and, and spread them around and become a little bit more cavalier you know when you're first doing it you're very nervous and, and then you get more comfortable with it you know as far as how to spread them and what's going to be successful um but you know again when you're dealing with an, a limited resource with endangered plant seeds you want to be very cautious and and you, you want to have a justification for a certain approach that we didn't we weren't doing experiments anymore but we were justifying hey why are we putting these seeds here you know, why is that going to be good? And we're tracking as much information about the locations that, that we're putting the seeds so that we can revisit them. And, you know, 
we now have been doing this, right, like I said, since like 2015, 2016. And then actually right in the other room, uh, I have two staff members. And they're, they're working on the monitoring program, which is funny because we've been monitoring it, right? But we've been creating, essentially creating this monitoring program and learning how to do it all. Like, where should you take soil samples? What are the, what's, how do you do a pollinator survey? How do you do seed set uh, estimates? And we've very few people, when you're working with any endangered species, get to interact with it a lot. And we were creating methods because that's a good thing to do, right? Be careful and, and, and have justifications. But methods that were just like, yeah, that was a good idea back then. <laughs> but now we've learned that this is a much more either efficient or effective or safer or sensitive way to do it. And so, you know, it seems silly that we we're writing the monitoring program. We're rewriting the monitoring program just, just so that we can make sure that we're instituting you know, on paper all the things that we've learned. And we'll probably look back at that in five years and go, well, boy, were we naive when we made that monitoring program. This is actually the better way to, to do it. But that, that's, that's part of learning. And so you know, if we keep on getting the support and the ability to keep on using essentially Huntington Beach wetlands as this living outplanting laboratory, then all the lessons that we're, we're learning can be then spread. And, and so our, our, our next big effort that we're just getting launched, so I call it Chamama Recon. Um, and that's the name of the, the project because uh, we've been given funding to, uh, well, first, we use this using uh, Google Earth, looked at all uh, all the potential locations between the border and Morro Bay where the species could be outplanted. We have analyzed 38 different marsh systems. And then it came with a bunch of rankings uh, and, and ways to rank them, you know, one through five, and then narrowed it down to 10 sites uh, within that range that we're actually going to go visit. And we're going to hike the entire site and go through another analysis of potential outplanting locations. So Kendall Frost uh, Marsh, which is in the UC Reserve System, is, is a great one. Um, and then all those San Diego lagoons... None of them have bird's beak and all have some really great habitats. So Los Penasquitos and San Diego, uh, San Dieguito, uh, San Alejo, Batiquitas, and Agua Hedionda. We're going to be, oh, poor me, going to have to go hike all those spots looking for perfect upper marsh habitat that has certain plant community structures and hydrologies and all of that that we think uh, bird's beak can, can live in. Los Rios Wetlands is another site. Um, and then um, Campus Lagoon, which strange, I didn't, I never would have thought, but it, when I had an unbiased ranking system, and Campus Lagoon came out on top. And one of the reasons, again, the UC system, if we were able to find a good spot there, they would be able to care for it, and they're actually eager to. And, and actually, the, the, mo- the northernmost spot is uh, Devereaux Slough in the North uh, Campus open space. They're, they're actually attending uh, annual working group meetings for this species because they're like, can we get some seed? We have a new restoration project. And one of my big ideas, I don't know, one of my, my big theories is the best time to get this particular endangered species into the plant community is when the plant community is developing itself. Get it in not too early when it's barren, but not too late when you've maybe hit all your performance standards for vegetation cover. Somewhere in the middle where there's the patchiness and get it in there. And, and 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 that's where that's why San Alejo and San Dieguito, 
uh, and the North Campus open space are really interesting for me and spots that I really want to try and get them to, uh, to develop out planting programs for because then the plant can be a part of that community early on and develop with it. That would be really interesting to track old sites where it doesn't exist that are well-established that you're trying to get in and then newly restored sites where you're introducing it. So, so what we're going to produce from, from, from that is recommendations as to which places the uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service should target for additional outplanting, and it's all towards the recovery plan of the species. So uh, there's a certain metrics that they have to hit in order to get it uh, downlisted, and there's certain very lofty uh, metrics that it has to meet to get it delisted. And one of those is the number of marshes that it's found at. So we're, we're really helping with their recovery plan. With all of their efforts and their partner's efforts to conserve the species, I find it useful to take a step back and think on why this plant is, quote, important. Not only to the conservation-minded, but to the general public, who may or may not be able to tell the difference between most plants they come across, let alone a federally endangered species like saltmarsh birdsbeak. It's it's uh, it, it's all dependent on your value system, <laughs> importance. Right. And I just earlier said what's become important to me. And, you know, I've, I've changed my value system because I've grown as a person. And so you asked me, why is salt marsh bird's beak important? And I would say it's probably not. Uh, it's probably not important to most humans on Earth, um, especially because it's so regionally specific. And beyond that, since it's only found in a few places, it's just not that important. Um, but to botanists, Super important, you know. It's a, a, a rare plant, you know. It's super rad to see, and it's, and it's beautiful. And so, from a botanist, it's like, wow, I want to see this plant continue to exist, just because I feel good that it does. Um, but it, it's 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 not charismatic outside of you know a, a botanical perspective you know it's not an orca it's it's not a otter it's not a sea turtle um but you know from the i guess ecological metaphor um every member of a community is important and that's something that all humans can hopefully appreciate except for ignorant ones and we can't do anything with them right um, but you know, every person and every animal and every plant is part of whatever community is, is important to, to understand. And there's, there's a reason for their existence. And this particular plant is, is a, is a needy finicky part of the community. Um, and it's, and it's been lost from the community for many reasons. So then we have to ask ourselves, why has it been lost? What is going wrong? There, mu this must, there must be something unhealthy if members of the community are dropping out. <laughs> Where are they going? Why is this happening? And can we get them back again to rebuild that community? And in many cases, as you talk to so many people about their conservation efforts, it's impossible to, to really do that. And, and, that, and that's, that's what we're really trying to answer in this instance is, 
can we bring it back and can we make it a sustainable, long-lasting, contributing member of these salt marsh plant communities? And I, I, the, the answer is unknown still. But we've, we've learned so much and we've gotten, like I said, a less scared about handling the seeds, a little more cavalier in, you know, how we select our outplanting sites because we've seen success. And, you know, like I said, we, we had a few germinations. We had 200 plants about germinate that first time where we waited a year for it to come. And then just last year, we had 743 plants. And then this year, we estimated that we already have, and it's, it's usually before they germinate. They usually germinate in March, and we're in February right now. Uh, my staff came back and, and are estimating we already have a thousand plants germinating <laughs> in Huntington Beach wetlands, and, and so one of the things when I look more focused at why it's important is I have young professionals on my team that have become experts in this species, and they, they didn't even know that they were going to ever work with this plant, and probably didn't even know it ever going to exist. And now, you know, if someone was to call me up and say, I need the person that knows how to identify pollinator species that can I'd pollinate saltmarsh bridge, I'd be like, it's not me. <laughs> it's my staff member that's been dedicated to this project out there, you know, doing all this all this work. And so the importance is, is, is you know, when we're talking about our industry and we separate ourselves from everything else is that there's an agency that cares about its survival and its recovery. And they care enough that their staff members are writing these proposals to get the funding to give to entities like us uh, that, they, that we've made, you know, that they've made partnerships with. And that's actually part of the recovery plan is to make partnerships with folks that can do this work for them. And they realize that partnership and, 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 and have continued to support it so that young professionals can go out there and solve these problems for us. And, and, and it, it might not be bird's beak that my staff members are going to work on for the rest of their life, but they're going to learn so much about this that if they stay in conservation, they'll be able to apply those same lessons learned. How do we rewrite a monitoring program for something that we were supposed to be doing right the first time? You know, what is that like? You know, uh, how do you troubleshoot? How do you adaptively manage? How do you deal with failures? Um, and what, how do you measure success? And, and so I think that's the the importance. Is it, it is a case study, like so many other instances, where somebody cares, and then other people are getting opportunity to um, practice. Now, with that in mind, how does he take this business, which still has all the same responsibilities as any other business, like payroll, workers' comp, taxes, etc. And instill a sense of pride and conservation in his staff and partners, while also having somewhat of a normal life. That is that is a win, and I, and if I feel you. You don't always get that in every workplace uh, when they're super super corporate. And I, I don't want to put down a, any you know business structure, but there's just a. Uh, you know, a different mentality when you have such a, a massive overhead and in infrastructure and you, you're part of, you know, mergers and the, the company that originally started has been merged three times and, you know, you, you, you don't have uh, a really sense of direction and it's just, it does become only focused on the business and getting another project and getting another project and working that project and, you know, dollars and cents of it all. And so people that people then find a hard time who are working for those types of firms, uh, 
being passionate about it and, and feeling the, the love of work. You don't have to love your work, but it damn, it damn makes it a, a little easier. I don't love <laughs> most of what I have to do. You know, it's a you know, it, it's sometimes painful to read a contract, and, you know, work on minutia. But I, I, I guess I know what I'm doing it for, so it makes it worth it. Um, but however, lately in my life, you know, work is not my life anymore, and I've matured and, and grown as a human and created other humans and I always thought it's silly when people say oh when you become a parent you know kids will become your big focus and that's actually what brings me the most joy I I do all uh, everything I, I do and people think I must work all the time I don't work at night I don't work on the weekends I don't I don't wake, I don't wake up early and go to work I, I, I pretty much work from nine to five Monday through Friday and that means I have to be super efficient and focused and know, and know what my priorities are. But I have to make those decisions now because I have other passions that uh, I, I've made myself open to. Because uh, I realized that the end all be all was not work. Even though you know I helped start this company and I've helped perpetuate it, there are other things, and I want other people to help me do this while I do some other cool things. He already mentioned that his middle name is Forrest. But where does someone who has created such a unique niche in conservation get a start? How did he become who he is today? Yeah, I am born and raised in, in Long Beach, California, uh, the LBC, and pretty devoid of nature. Um, but as I said on, on the outset, I was uh, given the middle name Forrest. And uh, my parents were definitely nature enthusiasts, enjoyed backpacking and, and, and camping, and especially uh, surf camping. So, you know, I grew up, uh, as many people in my generation did, with a 1968 VW camper van, or maybe you had a van again or whatever it was. And my parents would, you know, drive uh, our family down to Carlsbad State Beach or San Leo State Beach every summer for at least two weeks. And we would beach camp there. And camping is cool. And, and again, that's not the most natural place on earth. Um, but it was on the ocean, which is the greatest wilderness. Uh, you know, and so as a kid, I would just, you know, spend two weeks on the beach. And, um, you know, knowing it or not knowing it, I was exploring nature. And uh, when getting to high school, I didn't even take general bio. I took marine bio as a junior and got to go, you know, to... Marine biology camp at Catalina Island, and you know, do a, a fake research project on kelp, and you know, wanted to be a, a kelp forest ecologist, and did you end up marrying one. I, I ended up marrying a, a kelp forest ecologist, but never became one myself. And um, when it came to time to apply to to universities, uh, I had a few select ones, and uh, lo and behold, I ended up going back to <laughs> my summertime. Uh, location down in, in San Diego and 
went to UC San Diego, but not for marine biology, but for, I guess I mentioned earlier, ecology, behavior, and evolution. And so I ended up studying instead of, you know, more organismal biology type stuff, um, more theoretical stuff. But uh, one of the professors uh, was a plant ecologist, and uh, there are two PhD students in the lab as well. And so there's like three of us in the lab, so we're going to become friends. And I, I actually became, became quite friendly with one of the PhD students who was studying a Mimulus arntiochus, uh, or sticky monkey flower bush. And uh, I was always looking for loopholes in academia, how to get through faster and do what I wanted. And I found that instead of taking a lab course, I could do independent study and do a research project. And I was like, dude, next quarter, can I be your uh, research assistant? And he's like, yeah, every Tuesday and Thursday, we jump in his car and go drive to some wild place where there's mimulus growing all throughout San Diego County. And uh, sometimes he'd hang out there with me, and other times I would sit there by myself and stare and do pollinator observations and wait for a hummingbird to come along to a, a flower and ha- have a tally, a handhead tally thing and count the number of times it went after the flowers. And he was studying flower colors and all this stuff. But staring at plants for hours on end made me realize, I want to be a plant ecologist. And so going from you know, thinking I want to be a marine biologist, going to the beach with my family in San Diego to then going to school in San Diego and realizing, yeah, I like plants. Uh, it was it was totally crazy. I told my parents, she's like, you never even like gardening and you're going to be a plant ecologist. And so, you know, yeah, that's what I wanted to be. And then I started applying to grad schools and, uh, <laughs> and uh, I got into Cal State Long Beach and they had a wetlands plant ecology lab. And I was like, yeah, it's plant ecology. I don't even know at the age of 21 what the hell a wetland is. But one of the first weeks of my first semester, I ended up on a boat and my lab partner who's a cohort she just started her program too but she knows her exact project she was doing a study in steam shovel slough so i'm on a boat with lenny arkenstall and my advisor and uh melissa apodaca or melissa shiani who's now now works for the epa as like the leading person in mitigation banking for wetlands and i i, I discovered steam shovel slough that day at the age of 22 um and this place is less than a mile stone's throw from my house that I grew up in and didn't even know it existed. And I instantly fell in love with it. And I, I thought I'd move back down in San Diego. And, and um, I ended up creating a wonderful project for myself that studied salt marshes all up and down the coast and um, ended up actually earning a thesis of the year when I graduated. I didn't know what my project was when I started and had the best thesis in, in the College of Natural Science and Mathematics when I graduated. And, but most importantly, fell in love and, and, and developed a passion. And also through that, I, I met your brother. And that's when we decided to enter in this crazy business that we started. And, you know, just kind of following paths has been really fun for me. I never really swam against the stream. I just kind of flowed with it and accepted. I didn't become a marine biologist, but I married one. You know, <laughs> didn't become a kelp forest ecologist, but I get to hang out with one all the time. And instead, I went, went the direction that, that I felt was right for me. So, Eric talks about the wisdom he's found and going with the flow. But you can't go with the flow without motivation or hope. So as always, we asked, what is it that gives him hope? For the future, and specifically for conservation. 
I guess what gives me hope is that there'll be you know more people that express what I just expressed with their trajectory of their life where they were able to find things that fit with them and keep on going with them and not be afraid to then move on to the next thing that also fit with them and continue to make decisions and put themselves in those positions. And I hope that continues for me. Um, but I also hope that I, I hear more stories about people doing that themselves. And I don't hear those enough. I hear a lot of people, especially, um, in their twenties and thirties, really struggling with our society and, and finding, you know, any foothold or anything that they want to grab onto and, and, and nurture and love. So I hope that, and what gets me excited is by giving a, a place for people to, to do that. What I have here, it's, it's in a consulting firm, but it's also a, a bit of a professional development and a people development thing. And, and I, I, I hope that the people that are working for me are finding enjoyment. If they aren't, that they're coming to me and going, Hey, you know, can I do something else? You know, this doesn't really work with me because, you know, I, I, I don't really care about people being happy, but I, I'll, I, I, I care about people being in positions where they can grow. And, and so, yeah, that's what gets me exciting is, is seeing people grow. This has been a Pelicanus production. I'm your host, Austin Parker. Producer on this episode is Austin Parker and Taylor Parker. Some of the music you heard today was provided by a picture book. All of our podcasts can be found on our website at pelicanus.org. All right, thanks for listening, everybody. Talk to you next time.